Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Addicts, especially those leaving the prison system, need intensive support at this critical point of vulnerability. A stable job and income are important elements to provide structure, consistency and purpose. This week's podcast guest, Simon Fennick, is Operations Manager of Fruit to Work, an enterprise creating meaningful employment opportunities for those impacted by the justice system. His transformation from an addict thrown deep into Australia's criminal underworld to an inspirational figure changing the lives of others is one you will not want to miss by tuning into this podcast. Simon is a former Australian and Asia-Pacific kickboxing champion and was a finalist in the Social Enterprise Champion of the Year Award in 2019. In 2020, he was named by Qantas Travel Insider magazine as one of the 100 most inspiring Australians. Listen in as Simon takes us through his journey from working as a delivery driver in 2008 suffering a workplace injury as a delivery driver in 2008 and making life-changing decisions that took him down paths of addiction, rehabilitation, self-discovery and finally to his purpose today. Simon, thanks very much for joining us on our episode, Pebble in the Pond, in this podcast. We appreciate you joining us and coming on to share your story and your journey with our listeners and what you're up to at the moment. But Simon, if we start back with your history, I guess... to set the scene and give it a bit of context, how far back do we go? Is it your, your childhood growing up? Is that a bit of background would be great? Firstly, thanks for having me, Sam. But where do we start? I, I really I really believe that my downward spiral started in 2008. Yeah. So let me just set the scene prior to 2008. Prior to 2008, I lived in a beautiful 50-square double-storey home, which I owned. I, I drove a, a Mercedes-Benz and I rode a Harley-Davidson. I was South Australian East Coast kickboxing champion. I was two-time Australian kickboxing champion and I was South Pacific kickboxing champion. Wow. I was fit as a fiddle. I had great parents growing up, European parents, hardworking people. I definitely wasn't born an addict and I definitely wasn't born a criminal. But, but I think those two fall hand-in-hand to a certain degree. Simon, did you grow up in Adelaide? No, I grew up in Melbourne. In Melbourne, sorry, okay. So, okay, so, and then, so tell us in 2008, what was the undoing? How did it happen? And I mean, you're at the peak of your life. You obviously described you had a a good job. You were in your home, cars, family. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I believe I I was pretty set and well and truly on my way. I was working as a truck driver for a leading supermarket chain 
And one day whilst I was in the, the warehouse, I was struck in, a, in, in the back with a forklift okay. and my two lower discs in, in, my, in my back were damaged. That really sent me for a six. Went from being fit as a fiddle to being in constant pain 24 hours a day. And then the doctors gave me all these different medications, sleeping tablets, painkillers, muscle relaxants, nerve relaxants, antidepressants, and nothing worked. So you were in a wheelchair at this point? Correct, yep. So, Correct. so what did they have to do, Fu- from- fuse it or something? That to- what could they do? Well, well, they said they said that only only the time only time would heal it. Oh wow! Um, but there were things that we could do to speed the recovery up, and that was spinal therapy, acupuncture, physiotherapy, chiropractic. I, I tried everything, and and nothing worked. I was in constant pain twenty four hours a day. So you weren't sleeping well. You obviously couldn't. You couldn't certainly couldn't exercise. Lost your mobility. Well, we talk we talk about sleeping. The the most of the meds that they put me on. Uh, put me to sleep. You would be drowsy all day. Wow. Um, and that wasn't me because I've always been a goer. And you obviously went from independent to highly dependent on, on help. Correct. Because the medications weren't working, an acquaintance of, my, of mine popped around and told me that I looked like shit and he, he brought some cannabis with him. You know, he said that cannabis is supposed to be great for pain. And uh, he rolled his joint, we smoked it together, and that was worse. So that slow feeling, yeah, the slow feeling just intensified my pain and all I could do was concentrate on my pain. So he was out the door in a big hurry, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, wow. And then two, two weeks later, he came back and he had something different to try. He had ice. Now, I'd heard about ice, but it was fairly new then. Uh, I'd heard about it on the streets. I'd heard about it on the TV, but there was no big deal about it. And I thought if it's such a bad drug, how come you don't inject it? I didn't think it'd be any big deal about smoking this bit of crystal in a pipe. Well, I uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. So was it the smell of it that got you or you actually, it was when you had the first go then? Yeah, so so because I didn't know what it was and how it worked, I asked him to use it in front of me and sure enough, dropped this little crystal rock into a glass pipe. It dissolved. He inhaled the smoke, he blew it in my face, and it didn't even smell, like it didn't smell like awful cigarette smell or awful bong smoke. It didn't smell too bad. So I thought, I'll give that a crack. And the first time I did it, I didn't do it right. He goes, no, I'll help you. Well, the second time I did it, I got that full rush of smoke. And as soon as I exhaled, that feeling was absolutely incredible. Every hair over my whole body stood up and I instantly felt amazing. I, my back pain didn't disappear completely. My pain was nowhere near as significant as it was a couple of minutes before. So you said it didn't alleviate it completely, but did it also give you other, like a high as well, other than just the pain, relief? If you think about here I am with 12 months worth of pain, always in a dark place, I couldn't even pick, lift my kids up, couldn't even make it upstairs to uh, the bedroom where my wife was sleeping. You're always sleepy. And all of a sudden, I've had this puff of this gear and I feel a million dollars. My confidence level grew instantly. All those dopamines released into your brain, three months worth in, in that very first puff. I, I, I felt incredible. 
Wow. And obviously your wife would have noticed the change in you and, and your family. Yeah, well, she did because she, she was at work at the time. And by the time she got home, I'd actually managed to cook a meal and was talking 100 miles an hour. And she's just she's looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, she, she knew that I had taken something, but yeah. it was a hell of a lot better than when she used to leave me uh, going to work. And she often thought that she would come home and find me dead because I would have overdosed on the pain medication because I was sick of living that life. Yeah, that would have been you know, So then I got, this, I got this great idea because I thought I knew it all that I would throw the doctor's medications in the bin yeah. and I would start to self-medicate on ice. Wow. Wow. That's where the downward spiral came. So obviously the doctors didn't know about what you were doing when you were off the, the meds or anything like that. They just thought you were, you were fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, they give you a month supply. They're very quick in handing out, uh, very quick in handing out meds. I thought, what's the difference between what they can give me and, and what I can get if this is making me feeling better? This is the key. So I threw the, I threw the medication in the bin, and what started at fifty dollars a day soon turned to a hundred, soon turned soon turned to three hundred, soon turned to five hundred, soon wow. turned to a thousand. Wow. And the only way I could afford that habit in, in the ice world. You either deal or you steal. Yeah. I never made a very good thief, so I was always a pretty good businessman. So I, I started dealing. Wow. Okay. So that's and so in this whole time was this a quick transition from when you first had the first go at trying the drug to starting to deal, or are we talking like it was months? About three months, to be honest with you. I hid it for as long as I could. I drained the bank accounts for as long as I could. And, and then when it was blatantly obvious, and not only that, what I also found was the smaller amounts of ice you bought, the worse the quality was because everybody's trying to make a dollar on it. So everybody's cutting it and mixing it with rubbish, right? So yeah. I learned very quickly, the larger volume you buy, the better the quality. Wow. And that's what got you in it. Were you surprised about how addictive it was when when you first had it. Was it surprising how great it made you feel and how addictive that? Because it's supposed to be highly addictive. This drug. Yeah. Look, after I had this couple of big puffs at the start, I said to myself, "Wow, this is too good. I'm never going to have this again." But that kept me awake for about two days. In that two days, I did more in those two days than I had done in the prior twelve months to my injury. Wow. Right. But. As that drug started wearing off, so going into the third day, the drug was wearing off and everything became a hundred times more darker. So so my pain intensified. My feelings intensified. I I never even wanted to see daylight. I never answered my phone. I I closed all the curtains, wouldn't answer the door. And that's where I I thought to myself, you know what? This is an easy fix. It's just as much as getting another piece of ice. Yeah. Just getting another fifty dollars worth, and that's that's where it started. And during this time, let's say the first when you started dealing, what was the situation with the family? Was your wife still trying to support you? Would she? Yeah, look, it it really didn't take long for that to decline at, at a rapid rate because I went from sleeping all the time to not sleeping at all. Mm. I would be up all night on the computer or go into the shed and do a little bit of work. And then it wasn't long 
because my mind was racing so much, it wasn't long before I really started getting bored. So I decided that I would move into a factory and start because I was always I was always good at, at tinkering with cars. Yeah. So I thought that I'd move into a factory, buy a couple of cars, and trip them and make a few dollars that way. It also gave me an excuse to get out of the house and I could use whenever I wanted. I could bring whoever I wanted to the factory because what, what Ice does is you push away anyone who's decent in your life and you surround yourself with other ice users. Yeah, right. So you, you moved out into the factory. Yeah, I moved out into the factory and, and because I was spending so much time at the factory, it wasn't uh, long before my wife and kids didn't want to borrow me and who was to blame them. By then, I was I was heavily addicted to ice, and my interest was where I was going to score and how good the gear was going to be, and who owed me money. So that can yeah. consume so, your life. Then, when you did you do much actual work on the cars, or was it all just more of a front? Yeah, well, the, the thing was this: ice it was as re- as readily available as bread and milk. So because I was buying large amounts, there was always a little bit in the kitty, and before I knew it, there'd be a couple of guys always hung around a factory because they'd come there for a smoke. They'd give me a hand on the cars. And before I knew it, uh, we were running a 24-hour operation where we were stripping cars 24 hours a day. I had five guys working for me, all smoking ice, and they'd stay at the factory with me. There'd be guys coming in to buy ice. They'd be selling ice through there. There'd be guys bringing in hot gear, which I would exchange for ice as well. I started dealing with some really unsavory characters because I had money, because I had drugs and I had a workplace that was out of sight. I was shot in the thigh and I was stabbed three times in the back of the neck by three guys who tried to stand over me for drugs and money. I nearly died. Wow. Whilst using ice and the family had gone, my father died, my brother died, my mother died, and then the last straw was my daughter died. Wow. You know? Simon, was that was any of that connected to what you were doing, or that was all just natural causes, the deaths in your family? Yeah, that, that was all natural causes. Wow. My brother died from a heart attack. My my mother died from dementia at a young age. My father got pancreatic cancer. My daughter died at six days old. I mean, what adversity for someone to go through, and it's just almost unbelievable as you sit there and describe it, but yet it's so real. I mean, it must have been, it must have been a traumatic experience at the time, were you sober enough to really feel what was going on with those losses? And that was the thing. First, my dad died. So you just use more and more and more drugs to numb yourself. Then the brother and then my mum. But when my daughter died, there was nothing left in the tank. Mm. Nothing. And you can only smoke so many drugs to numb yourself. When my daughter died, the daughter, the pregnancy was a glimmer of hope in, in a very dark world. Once my daughter died, I had no, no more will left to live. I had five suicide attempts. I really believed that three out of those five suicide attempts, I really wanted to die. Yeah. Must have been a pretty dark. Yeah. At that point, were you still using? Yeah, I was using heavily. Okay. Definitely, yeah. And before I – the last attempt was a shotgun in my mouth. Before I pulled, before I pulled the, the trigger on that shotgun – I smoked a ridiculous amount of ice. What, what are some of the side effects that you've experienced from taking so much drugs? You obviously mentioned staying awake a lot 
and I don't know when you sleep if you if you're running a 24 hour show and your your body must have been deprived of of at least sleep and nutrition. Is that some of the the impacts that it can have on yeah. you? Yeah, I, I looked terrible. My my cheeks were all caved in. I had pimples. I had a bad habit of when I would be up for days, I would start to pluck the hairs out of my face, my facial hair, with tweezers. I mean, my 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 beard, my moustache. I would pluck every single hair out of my face. I would be constantly in front of a mirror plucking at my face or trying to squeeze something that wasn't there. Mm. I looked like death. Barely ate, slept for 45 minutes at a time, two or three times during the day. It was, I was a shadow. In actual fact, my, ex, my ex-wife, that's what she used to say, that I was a shadow of the man I used to be. Yeah. And so this space, Simon, we're talking about from when you started the addiction with ice to help with the back pain to when your daughter passed, your father, your your mother, your brother, your daughter. What what are we talking there? Is it like a two year time frame? Is it how long is this? Five years? From the time I started using ice to the last death, which was the daughter, it was over five. It was over a five year period, but I'd lost all my family within within a two year period. Wow, two and a half year period. Uh, I mean, that would have been tough to deal with at any time, let alone when you're high on drugs and and whatnot. But I can't relate to this, obviously. So, but mate, it's just incredible. And so, at what point did you sort of did something within you say, you know what, I need to turn this around? What what happened? Did you go to jail? Did- so, so I always knew, even in my darkest times, that if I wasn't going to die, I needed to ch- to turn my life around. I, I always wished that the police would grab me and send me to a compulsory rehab, but that was never never the case. I got raided a couple of times and out of the raid came a corrections order. And part of that corrections order was I had to see a counsellor. I'd seen, uh, so they sent me to two different counsellors. One counsellor was worried about where the doctor signed the paperwork and was worried about not being able to get paid. So that was a total waste of time. But then the other counsellor I went to see, I saw her three times. The first time after an hour and 20 minutes, she said to me, and here I am pouring my heart out, telling about my drug use and all of the above. After an hour and 20 minutes, she said, Simon, we're 20 minutes over time. And to be honest with you, I don't really know what advice I can give you. The first time I heard that, I thought, oh, well, at least she didn't try and spin off some rubbish that she read out of a book, right? Yeah. The second time I seen her, an hour into the appointment, she said the same thing to me. The third time I seen her, halfway through the appointment, I said to her, you've got that same stupid look on your face. Are you going to tell me at the end of this session that you know what you're going to say to me? She goes, well, well, I really don't, Simon. So I just left and I gave up on the counselling. Got deeper and deeper into the drug world. Because I was in a little bit of trouble to get in a little bit more, never fazed me. And then a little bit more and a little bit more, I knew that I was going to go to jail, whether it be today or tomorrow, I was going to go to jail. And sure enough, after being caught for about the fifth or sixth time dealing drugs, I went to jail. That was the lowest point for me. That was the turning point for me. Locked up in a, in a cage where you're with a cellmate 
who's going to the toilet while you're eating your dinner a metre away from, from you was the lowest point. Drawing myself up from the drugs. There are plenty of drugs in jail. Don't think for a minute because you're in jail, drugs are hard to get because they're not. Is that right? I thought that that was my chance of drawing up and, and, and turning my life around whilst I was incarcerated. So, so that's did, what I did. Did you? So you didn't take any drugs while you're in in jail? No, 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 no. I can't. I came down very hard. A lot of the times we were isolated for 22 hours a day. I came down very hard. All of a sudden, all that grief of the family that I had lost and what I had done to my life hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. My back pain came back really strong, but there's no help in jail. So no medic, none of the stuff you were on. No, 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 nothing, nothing like that. You know, the only thing they gave me in jail was antidepressants. Yeah, right. Because I started making changes whilst I was in jail. So I got sentenced. I got sentenced five months into my prison term. So in the first five months, I had made a lot of positive changes. Once those chemicals started to regenerate in my head really work out what was going on, I started to make some changes. I enrolled in as many courses and programs as as I could get into. I started writing letters to my family. I started going to church. I really wanted to change my life around. So the, the, the judge had sentenced me to 12 months, and I used that 12 months to better myself to the best of my ability to have some tools yep. to use once I was released from prison. What sort of programs did they have available in, in jail? Well, they, they had a few. They had they did have a few programs, but to get in a program wasn't as easy as you would think. See, some of the programs had a seven-month waiting list wow. to get into to get into them. Now, because I was sentenced five months into my prison term, I wasn't even eligible to apply for those programs. So what I did do was I would ask the screws if they could get me into any program possible. Uh, on that day, if somebody had been released from prison, or if somebody had not turned up to prison, if they could just make up a, if they could just make a phone call and and call education and see if I could get into a program, and what, so I'd pick up bits and pieces. Were they all done remotely, Simon, or were they people come in and you go to a classroom? How does it work? Yeah, people people come in and you go to a, a classroom. Normally, about between ten and twelve people. And was the culture there that people trying to better themselves and, I mean, was that frowned upon? Was it something that you weren't afraid to to be seen to be doing this? I mean, what's the culture like? What, what I really liked about those programs is you actually got to listen to other people's stories. Right. Well, listening to other people's stories really opened my eyes to to the life that I had had prior to jail. Some of the guys that I was in jail with had absolutely terrible upbringings and there was no wonder that they were in jail. Yeah. So, so listening to these other people speak actually made me appreciate the life that I had had prior to jail. Mm. Listening to their experiences and what they, they had gone through actually made me start to appreciate the family that I still had left and not concentrate on all that I had lost. So were they self-improvement programs? Is that what it was? was they, yeah. they, they ranged anything from a relationships program to a parenting program, ice effects program, drug and alcohol 
dealing with emotions, dealing with grief, dealing with worry. I did as many as I could get in. Yeah, that's incredible. And and as you as you reflect on your time in jail, what are some of the things you think that needs to improve with people that are incarceration? I, I really believe that programs need to be made easier to get into. Yeah. And there also needs to be some tools, some some help given, and, and even some hope given about how you can start your life once you're released from prison. There needs to be some better preparation done from, from behind the walls for the day that you're released from prison. Because the day that I was released from prison, what I expected to get out to was very different to what I got out to. Yeah, so you mean you thought you had a job waiting for you, family, place to stay, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I, I knew that my family had gone. I had one, I had, I've only got my brother left who's left alive, and he was a great support, but he made it quite clear. He set boundaries. I wasn't to live with him, but he would help me in any other way. I wasn't also, I wasn't released a free man. I still had a corrections order that I had to fulfill. Mm-hmm. That corrections order included 380 hours community work, a mental health program, a drug and alcohol program, a men's behaviour change program. I had judicial monitoring and I had to see my corrections worker once a week as well as try and live. So as well as try and get a job. Now you try and get a job when you're jumping through all those hurdles every day of the week. Yeah, and so as you... As well as have a dirty, dirty long criminal record. Yeah, and so you weren't actually compensated to be able to do that community service, right? That's all free. So you need to find the time to donate that and then still try and find time Correct. to make a living. Correct. Yeah, I was released on Centrelink. Centrelink was $520 a fortnight. And the better boarding house that my brother got into was $200 a week for that room. Now, when I was actually released from prison, the jail had organized a boarding house for me. So my brother picked me up from from prison, took me to the boarding house. I knocked on the door. The lady answered the door. She was slurring her words. She was clearly intoxicated on heroin. She's pointing me down the hallway where my room was. I'm doing these three padlocks in the door, telling me that my room smells like urine because the guy in the room next to me urinates on the carpet, you know, urinates on the wall, and it goes through to my carpet. And sure enough, when this door opened... The smell of urine nearly made me vomit. I I took a step into the room and there was three syringes on the carpet. The accommodation was a mattress and base only, no no bedding, no nothing, Mm. uh, with a big, dirty brown blood patch on the mattress. This is where I was supposed to start my new drug-free life after I had served my sentence. I I couldn't stay there one day. Oh, I don't blame you. Is it any any wonder you think that people – Reoffend when they go to places like that as their first point of guarantee. You know, I was feeling that vulnerable. You know, my jail cell was cleaner than that house. What I had envisioned in my head to what I had received, I, I was just totally blown away. It, it, it is no wonder people go back in you straight away. Yeah. So, what did you, you do? Know? You turned to your brother and you said, "Mate, can I can I bunk at yours?" What? Yeah. So I said, I said "Can I can I stay at yours?" And he said. I'm sorry, Simon. I told you from the start. I said, that, that's fair enough. I said, can I stay in your car? He goes, no, you're not going to stay in your car. He goes, Let, I'll sort something out for you. So he put me up in a hotel for two nights. 
And then we got into a better boarding house, a drug-free boarding house. And that was a roof over my head. So that was a start. I, here I am in a nice, clean environment. That was a great start. But then I needed a job. And having to jump through all these hoops for corrections and get a job was next to impossible. So was it just the time constraint that was really hard for you or was it the fact that it was hard to get anybody that wanted to take on someone that had been in jail? Both. Yeah. Both. So uh, having all these requirements two, three days a week as well as curfew hours and all of the above was difficult. But then any job that I did apply for, as soon as they saw a criminal record, no way they were going to give me a job. Yes. So you, you had a, a really clean place to live. You had a great spot to start with. You're doing community service. What did you do then? Well, I was struggling to eat. I was left for $60 a week to survive on. Generally, after the first week, I was normally broke and hungry, and I would go to the Uniting Church for food parcels. So they, they were a big help. The Salvation Army were a big help. But I shouldn't have been doing that. I should have been able to stand on my own two feet. I wanted to see my kids. Yeah. Again, but I was embarrassed because I never had 10 cents in my pocket. Yeah. And I went to my corrections worker and said to her one day when I was broke, hungry, I never even had any credit on my phone to make a phone call. It looks like I'm going to end up back in jail because I, I just cannot afford to live out here anymore. Nobody will give me a job. No one will give me a chance. Poor me, poor me, but I really wanted to better myself. I knew that if I, if I went back to dealing drugs, I would have ended up in jail, almost certainly dead this time, and I didn't want that. So just by fluke, the company that I work for today, Fruit to Work, had put a fly through to the corrections officer saying, hey, if somebody's got an offending background, we've got uh, an employment opportunity. We, we look for people who have come from the justice system, fly wow. here. So I've got the caseworker to make a phone call, made a phone call i had a job interview and three days later i was starting job which was two days a week starting at 1 30 in the morning on the other side of town picking packing fruit and then going out around melbourne and delivering it that was the turning point for my life getting to where i am today wow so tell us about fruit to work then what what do they do do they is it a charity is it a not-for-profit yeah so fruit to work is a not-for-profit social enterprise Right. that create chances for, for those who have been impacted by the justice system. So everybody from the top to the bottom of Fruit to Work, everybody that works here has been touched by justice system in one way or another. We create chances by, by, by giving meaningful employment, letting people work here while they're doing their parole periods or the corrections orders. We deliver fruit and milk and every dollar goes back into giving someone else a second chance at life. And is it a stepping stone traditionally, Simon, for people that are coming out just to get back up on their feet until they can get something to go into something else? Or? Correct. What we do here is a lot of guys and girls who work, who start here have either never had a job or haven't had a job for many years. So it's just a matter of getting them into routine, routine into not using your phone at work, being able to start early in the morning, turning up to work on time just refreshing all those skills. We do goal setting. From the day that you start at Fruit to Work, we start your transition plan and we revisit that after four weeks, after six weeks, after 12 weeks. And we look at what skills you need to go into the role that you want to do. Now, 
we understand that no one's going to come in and want to be a brain surgeon and has to go to school for, for 10 years to do that. But if they need a forklift license, if they need a truck license, yep. if they need a couple of courses, we help put that together for the guys. It, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Because that transition period is so crucial, as you've mentioned in your own experience, that you're probably in a position where you're highly more likely to reoffend if there is no such support network out there or someone that's willing to give people a second chance. This social enterprise was started by a guy who was a psychiatrist in the Bowen prison system. And he'd see guys, after doing long sentences, have all these plans. And after three months, he'd see them back in jail. And every time he asked them why, what happened, it was one of two things. Either they couldn't get a roof over their head or they couldn't get employment. Mm. Now, those things, those two things both tick the same box. If you can't get employment, it's impossible to pay for a roof over your head. And if you haven't got a roof over your head, it's almost impossible to get employment. Yeah, you're living yeah. on the streets, so that, you can't show up to work on time, you can't make yourself look presentable. Yeah. Yeah. So they started this business. This business had been running for five years. When I started in this job, I still felt like a junkie. I still felt like a prisoner or an ex-offender. But because I wore a high-vis uniform, I was shown trust, given passes to a building. I was given a company vehicle to deliver goods with. All of a sudden, my confidence started to build. I was able to look at people in the face when they spoke to me. I didn't feel like a prisoner anymore. I started to pay tax. I got a pay packet every week. I was able to get my kids back in my life. All that stuff was life-changing. And I found something that I was good at. Yeah. So working with other people who had been touched by the justice system, I found I was good at because I could walk in their shoes and they could walk in mine. Our business started to build at a rapid rate. And before I knew it, I was given the operation manager's role. And today I do the hiring, I do the firing, I watch guys transition into, into full-time employment. Mm -hmm. Since Fruits of Work has been running, not one person who has come from the justice system has gone back to prison. Wow. In, in the five years that we have been running, we have been 100% successful in nobody that has joined our program has gone back to prison. That's incredible. In Victoria, the current stats are 47% uh, of people that are released from prison today will go back in the first two years after being released. We're not government funded in any way, shape or form. And every dollar we, we earn or we make goes back into giving someone else a second chance. It's really good. What a great concept. And the best thing is it's not just about a job that these people are getting when they come on board, but they're getting an actual plan, a strategy, some guidance towards getting back on their feet, which is something I assume a lot of people in that position really, really need and appreciate, which probably is the key behind the success of such of, of the program. We're, we're a little bit different as well, Sam. We, we base our employment on honesty and integrity. So... Here we are, we're, we're employing somebody out of the justice system. The first thing we ask them are what crimes they've performed or what, what, you know, what, what led them to jail. And then we do a crim check. And we, we know it's going to be flagged, but as long as the crim check marries up to what they've told us, that's the first sign of honesty for me. Yeah. I would much rather employ someone who's come from the justice system uh, and you've done a crim check and they've told you what they've done 
that employ somebody blind. Yeah, right. Yeah? yeah. Today, I'm the operations manager of this business. Today, I have a beautiful family. I've got a new partner. I've got a company car. I've saved money to put the uh, deposit on a block of land. We're going to build a house next year. Wow. Today, my life has done a 360 because somebody gave me a chance. Yeah. Well, it's, it's incredible. And, what a, and congratulations, on firstly, on, on being in that position. There, there must have been a time there where you were – I mean, it would have been easy – to go back to what you knew and what you were doing prior to getting this opportunity? Because I imagine it was a a few weeks that you were out there trying to hunt and find something to get into. And the easy road would have been to go back and and slip into the drug dealing or something like that. What do you think it was within you that kept you from taking that easy path and sticking it out to find something? I wanted to get my kids back in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Once my mind was clear from that putrid drug, what was really important to me, the people I had left in my life. Whilst I was on ice, all I could concentrate on what I had lost. But once I was clean, all I could concentrate on what was on what I still had. And that gave me determination to get my life back. Wow. Man, that's incredible. And, and did you reach out? Were your kids more forgiving and understanding, happy to meet with you as you were getting your life back on track? Did that, did that take some time to progress? It, it wasn't as easy as I thought it was. Just like the whole plan of getting out, I had to prove myself. I've got three kids. I've got a, a, six, uh, sorry, a seven-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 21-year-old. The seven-year-old and 17-year-old have a lot of contact with me. But my oldest son still won't talk to me. I'm hoping that time will heal that. I think I let him down one too many times. Yeah, but I mean, mate, the resilience that you've shown to stick it out and stay the path and and with fruit to work and the opportunities that they're providing for people in the justice who have been in the justice system, it's truly remarkable. And do you think it's as simple as trying to find more of these opportunities for people that will help reduce the statistics of people reoffending once they've been released from jail? I think, I think it's one of two things. For starters, the want has to be there. Now, when I say want, that person has to want to change his life, not think about changing his life, not would like to change his life, wants to change their life. And, and yes, there needs to be more chances or more opportunities out there for people who have come from an offending background. We've been to jail, we've cleaned our lives up, we've paid our price to society. Why not give us a go and let us get back on our feet? Yeah. How are you supposed to improve if people keep closing the doors on you? How are you supposed to get your life back? It's impossible. Yeah. Do you, do you, with fruit to work, like, is there a point at which when people come and work after they're released from jail, is there a point at which they say, well, you've got a 12 month, it's, it's the program is, you know, six months before we want you to get into something else is because obviously then there's people, other people that need to come out and try and fill the positions. Uh, it'd be nice if the company kept growing and everyone could stay there, but I understand there's a, it has to be some sort of a chain that has to happen. Well, it's funny you say that because we are very volumetic, volumetric driven. So our goal, at the moment we do about $1.5 million a year. In, in three years' time, we want to be at $5 million and transitioning 50 people every year. Wow. We, we base the employment around six months, but 
everyone has different circumstances. Everybody's ready at different times. Some people are ready in three months. Some people are ready in six months. Some are ready in 12 and some aren't ready at all. So we will hold on to those people till we think they're ready and they believe they're ready before we let them move into full-time employment or, or different employment. The, the hardest part about fruit to work is the guys and girls like working here that much, they never want to leave. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd have the problem. Um, <laughs> it is because they, they feel accepted. There's no stigma attached. We have our own classes that we provide every Friday morning. It's called The Power in Getting to Work where we go through, we reflect a little bit of our lot on our lives and we, we look to the future in, in building better people. Is there also an arm of fruit to work that helps find the other opportunities for people to transition them from fruit to work? Is that part of it? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So, you know, when I say I look for people through the justice system, not only, not only directly through the justice system, but there are a lot of employment providers who have guys and girls on their books who have got criminal records that are in the too hard basket. So what we do after having them for, for six months, three months, 12 months, we put our name behind them. We give them brilliant references. We, we, we tell it how it is and what they've achieved, how much growth there's been. And we give the employer, wherever they move on to, the option that, hey, if you're not happy with this guy or girl within six months, We'll take them back. Yeah. Today, to date, we have not taken one person back. Wow. Everybody has been racked with their staff. That's it, what a what a great reflection on on the work that's being done there. Then and and the success that such a, a business or organisation program really can have, and the influence it can have on people's lives who have been incarceration. So I mean, what's truly incredible. As you, Simon, as you look towards the future. What are you, I mean, what are you seeing for yourself? What are you, what's the hope? What's the goals? What's the dream? Well, if we're talking in a, in a business sense, I'm currently in training to be the general manager at Fruit to Work. Wow. The, the guy who owns Fruit to Work wants to retire in, in three years' time. So he's the CEO. He'd like me to step into his shoes. So that is my goal. My goal is to step into his shoes and to be able to make more and more opportunities for guys and girls who've just who've been touched by the justice system. My why, my true north, the reason I get up in, uh, every morning is to watch men and women reunite with their kids. I, I, get to, I get to sit back and watch it now. Somebody who comes in who can't afford petrol for their car, can't afford lunch their first week, and then a short period of time, get sent photos from their campsite and they've got their kids with them. I see the guys saving at Christmas time for lay-bys or, or buying their kids' birthday presents where the last five years they might have spent Christmas in jail. Yeah, That's my true north. That's personally or, or, or from a business sense, that's what I love to do. You know, on a personal level, I just want a very simple, happy life. Appreciate everything I have. And and I really do love life now. I'm so thankful that I survived my suicide attempts. I'm so thankful to be able to give back to the community. And I'm so thankful to be a part of changing people's lives. I feel honoured to be a part of changing people's lives. It must be so rewarding to see that, that gift that you can pass on to other people. But to from where you were to where you are, 
I mean, congratulations and you're a true leader in what you're doing and a lot of people, including the people you spoke to today in a room full of 200 people were highly inspired about what you've been up to and what you've done as a result of your experience. As you reflect on your experience, last question, what is what are the key learnings that that you could you could sort of sum up or, or what are the key takeaways to give other people some little nuggets or something that you think might help them or people that experience addiction at some point? The biggest advice or the or the, the most advice I could give anyone is is to never give up. There is always light at the end of the tunnel and just when things seem all too hard, the next day becomes a little easier and the day after that is a little easier and it gets easier day by day. It doesn't, it's not an instant cure. You are not fixed overnight. Your life isn't back to where you want it to be overnight. It takes time. You have to keep working at it, but it does get better. And I'm thankful to have that opportunity there's always light at the end of the tunnel. I put a I, I put a book out last year called Breaking Good. Right. It's an inspiring book and it goes into detail of the rises and falls and the rise again of Simon Fenny. How can people get hold of that book? Just Google it uh, on Google. Okay. You can get it through Booktopia and a lot of good bookstores keep it. It comes under true crime. Simon, if people, other people that have listened to this who feeling as inspired as most other people have that have heard your presentation and, and your journey and what you've done as a result of your super challenging upbringing or upbringing, but your experiences that you had to go through and how you came out of it, how can people get in touch with you? Facebook's probably a great one, LinkedIn, okay. or they can contact me via email at, at Simon at fruittowork.com.au. If I can help anyone in any way, and I, and I really mean that, it's just not something for the podcast. If I can help anyone in any way, I'm always willing to. Yeah. There was one other question I just thought of, Simon. How's your back pain going? Look, my back pain is, is manageable. In actual fact, I think, you know, we're talking, we're, we're talking 12, 11 years now, or 12 years now, I think I've been able to, to manage it quite well, and I think a lot of healing's gone on as well. Yeah. I wasn't the young bull. I'm not the young bull that I used to be, but I, I, uh, I can certainly get by okay. Yeah, well, congratulations, Simon, again, and I'm glad that you're feeling better. And, mate, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your story. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.